listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Hi, my name's Britt and we are in the middle of Lent. We've been looking at that passage where Jesus calls us to follow him, to take up our cross. But what does that actually mean? What does the cross represent here and now? We know this emblem so well. Some of us wear it. We see it on stained glass windows. It's been a part of the way we've grown up, if we've grown up in the West. But what did it traditionally mean? In Jesus' time, it was actually a representation of death, of slavery. It was peasants that were hung on a cross. There are so many different interpretations. Today, I want to look at it as an intersection. Simply that, if you think about it, it's an intersection. And what happened on the cross? is a representation of that. You could see death, but also there's the intersection of life with that. There is enslavement and freedom at the cross. There's also suffering, but there is joy on the other side of it. The cross is an intersection, and not just in Jesus' life, but ours. It's a place where things collide, where values collide, where the world and the kingdom came together where ideas, perspectives and thoughts emerge, things that we wouldn't understand, things that we do understand. It's a point of intersection. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to take up our cross. To follow and be a disciple of Jesus means to be with him. And that's with him in all things, not just in his resurrection, but actually what would it mean to go back and journey with Jesus? That's what we do over Lent. When we journey with Jesus, we spend time with him as he was a carpenter, spending hours building chairs or walking by the Sea of Galilee. There are many experiences of Jesus that we would journey with him here and now. He walked along and among the earth like we do. So that also means that it's not always going to be easy. The experience of Jesus was mixed. Some people loved what he had to say and some others didn't. He was empowered by Holy Spirit, and we too are as followers. But also he suffered. He cried out to God. He fasted. He was in the wilderness and had to declare God's truth to remember when Satan came and tried to tell him otherwise, to remember God's kingdom. We journey with Jesus means that we go with him into those places. And so it makes sense in our life when we experience suffering. It shouldn't surprise us, even though it does in a way. If we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to follow him, it means in all things. But each of these moments, each of these moments of joy, of suffering, of delight, of seeing power through the Holy Spirit, of encountering God in new ways, of being with others and witnessing to others, that's a part of being human in a way. Whether you follow Jesus or not, some of these things we encounter is because we walk this earth. So these experiences we have, these intersections in our life, what makes the difference? What makes the difference when you are diagnosed with a chronic illness or when work seems to dry up or when you're not sure what to do with finances or even you're struggling in many of your relationships? All of humanity experiences, right? But the difference is that you know Jesus and the cross. The cross and his presence, these intersections in our life are where we can witness the resurrection power. We have a choice to make in these intersections that we find ourselves in. And so I want to explore that more. I'm going to read from Luke 5 and look at Peter 
Peter's being called by Jesus. Um, he's called Simon at this point, but he'll be called Peter later on. I'm going to stick with saying Peter, even though it says it different in the text. But before I jump into scripture, I'd really love to pray and ask Holy Spirit to lead us and to speak to us about the intersections in our life. So please join me as I do. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you that you bring revelation. And so I ask, as we sit and listen to you, that you would highlight the intersections in our lives where you want to bring your kingdom and your power. Holy Spirit, may you prompt bring to mind or even just reinforce something that you're already speaking to the people who will hear this. I ask that you would lead my words as I share and, yeah, may this be about recognising your kingdom and stepping into that. Amen. So let's read from Luke 5. I'm going to read from verse 1 to 11. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he And all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. When Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. It's really helpful to have a bit of context to understand this story, particularly the writer Luke. He was a Gentile, which means he basically just wasn't a Jew. He was possibly um, Greek. He had a really good knowledge of Greek um, writing and actually Jewish literature. You can see it in the way that he writes his text. It's got a mixture of both in it. Um, And he was a physician, actually, by trade. He loves detail. And you know what? When I used to read Luke, I was like, mate, can we just get on with the story? Honestly, like it's like he wants to tell you how Jesus ties up his shoes. It's like he needs to tell you every little detail. But actually, if you slow down, there's a reason he does that. If you look at Luke's gospel, he puts a lot of history in before you even begin to read about the birth of Jesus. He wants you to see Jesus in um, the everyday, in history. Not only that, he has a lot of the Holy Spirit in his gospel too. And he's constantly helping you understand the intersection between those two worlds. He wants Jesus to come to life in that way. And so he makes details to help you really enter the story. So it's really helpful to understand that. The other thing is that this story takes place in a particular um, location, which also helps you understand who was there. So it starts by saying it was in the lake of, I can't even say it, Gennesaret, which is actually the Sea of Galilee, which might be a little bit more familiar to you. 
Now, don't think like Little Lake, like Blackburn Lake around the corner. That's maybe like a K across. This is actually huge. This lake is 21 Ks long. It's 13 kilometers wide and 43 meters deep. So it's actually quite big. Um, it's in a valley, so there's these amazing mountains around it, and it's actually a freshwater lake that's filled by the Jordan River. It's a really significant lake um, in Israel, and it's a place where many fishermen um, still actually get a lot of catches. So it's just really important to understand the context of where we are, that Jesus is actually walking by the Sea of Galilee, And if you imagine yourself there, there's probably a breeze. If you read on in the Gospels, you hear about a storm on the Sea of Galilee. It is that big that storms actually form on the surface of it. So it's a really um, raw kind of setting. And if you think about who would be there, as it says in the text, there was a crowd. There were people crowding around Jesus. He's walking along this shore. Who are going to be the people listening to Jesus in this time? Probably more fishermen probably people that are working the land. There are fishermen out and about. They've taken their nets out. Um, We know it's morning because the fishermen are cleaning their nets and they fish at night. So it's the morning and people are kind of just going about their days. Not only that, prior to this moment, Jesus has already done a lot of healing in the area. He's spoken at a couple of synagogues. So there may be some rabbis there, but the crowd is very everyday. That's the thing that Luke also loves to point out, that the people that Jesus is walking around with are just the general public, people that he wants to interact with. This isn't Jerusalem with all the high priests. In fact, Jerusalem is 120 k's away. It's quiet. There's a breeze coming off the Sea of Galilee. The boats are just sitting. The fishermen are just cleaning their nets. There's something really calm and beautiful about it. Jesus wants to speak to the crowd, so he turns, he picks a boat, and he sees Peter. Now, he actually already knows Peter. So prior to this, Jesus has healed Peter's uh, mother-in-law. And so when he goes up to Peter, asked to use his boat in Middle Eastern culture, it's traditional. If someone's done you a favor, then you, you know, oblige and give back. So Peter's going to have to stop what he's doing and is, of course, like, yep, jump in the boat. I'll take you out. Jesus sits down as a traditional rabbi does and speaks to the crowd. So That's a lot of information. It's just helpful to know as we go through this story to place yourself in the setting. Jesus is always up to multiple things. When he's preaching, it's never one thing that he is doing. And it's really interesting, he still does that now. And it's a nature, it's the nature of God. If you think about the way that God created the world, when he did one thing, you could see the link. When he created night, he also created day. And then things flow from that. Um, The earth can flourish under those things. And it's the same with Jesus. When he preaches, It's never just one thing. So you can imagine he's spoken to Peter, jumps in the boat. They pull out a little bit from the shore so that he can speak to the crowd. He sits down and he starts speaking. I always wonder, what is Peter up to in this moment? He's probably super tired. He's been out fishing all night and he's already heard Jesus preach. So maybe he's just listening as, you know, Jesus speaks to the crowd. Perhaps part of this is the Sermon on the Mount which is a traditional spot for where Jesus would have done his teaching. After he finishes, as we read in the account, it's like Jesus turns to Peter. His attention from the crowd is gone. A bunch of them probably walk away and he turns and he looks at Peter and he's like, all right, let's go out. It's really interesting to note that Peter's response here is actually a little bit cold and a little bit uh, rude in a way. 
Peter's relationship with Jesus so far hasn't been one where he has pursued Jesus. If you read in John's gospel, Andrew, his brother, actually tells him about Jesus. And Andrew's in the boat with him too. And so Jesus turns to Peter and says, let's go out into deep water to fish. And now it's a bit funny because Jesus is a carpenter. So Peter's kind of like, okay, mate, I know that you're good at making chairs and building tables, but I'm pretty sure I know how to fish. And the reason that we fish at night is because that's when the fish feed. So during the day, it's probably not going to work. He doesn't say that, but in a line, he's just like, I've been out all night. We've already worked super hard, but because you've asked, I'll do it. And he uses the phrase master. It's very formal, very much like, yeah, okay, I'll do it because you say so. Anyway, you can imagine him rowing out. Remember, this lake is big. So to go out into deep water, as Jesus has asked, it's going to take a little while. He's rowing tired and exhausted from a full night's work with no catch. Fishing in this time was kind of like the lottery. You would go out night after night and just hope for a catch. Maybe Peter hasn't had one for a while. The way that he answers Jesus sounds like it's been tough. We've been out all night working hard. Anyway, he rows out and, you know, finds a spot The fishing in that time was done with a giant net, so he throws it out into the water, as he does all the time, as he's done every night for the last week. And he just watches it sink and waits. I also wonder what Jesus is doing in this time. He's patient. He's sitting with Peter, even though Peter's distracted and perhaps a little bit annoyed at what he's doing. You can almost imagine when Jesus asked Peter to pull it in, he puts his hands over the boat dives him into that wet rope and thinks to himself, another empty catch, but almost falls in as the weight of the fish in the net actually pull on him. And as we read in the account, he can barely put it into the boat. We know Andrew is there because it says they pulled it in. So Andrew joins him and he's astonished. They're trying to heave it into the boat. In this moment, Peter's world changes. This is his intersection. There's a collision with what he has known. Something changes in this moment for him. He has seen Jesus heal many people. He healed his mother-in-law. But at this moment, Jesus has said to Peter, will you trust me? Will you follow me and listen to my lead in this? It's really hard to imagine what's going through Peter's mind. It's almost as if for the first time he recognizes and sees the kingdom because he's seen the king. This miraculous catch of fish in the middle of the day, it doesn't make any sense. And what does this mean for Peter? A catch this big will, you know, give um, meal and provide wells for such a long time. This is significant for him. And you can see in his response that something has changed. As I said earlier on, he addresses Jesus as master. Later on, he says, Lord. Not only that, he falls before Jesus' feet. He understands who he is standing before all of a sudden. Peter would have grown up hearing about the Messiah to come. And when Andrew goes to get him, he says the Messiah is here. He's finally arrived. But it's not until Peter looks at Jesus, not until Peter is called by Jesus that he actually sees him. Peter is faced with a choice. His priorities are completely challenged in this moment and he could have comfortably remained in his faith he was a faithful follower 
He would have gone to synagogue. He would have served his family well. He had this catch now, which have covered many things. He could have stayed safe in the boat, continuing his trade and let Jesus go on. But Jesus invites him. He says, follow me. I'm going to teach you a different way. And you can imagine that there's this gap. As they get back to shore, as they you know, pull out in all the fish, James and John are there. They've witnessed it all. So is Andrew. And Peter has to make a choice to leave everything he's known and follow Jesus. This is Peter's intersection. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says when talking about when we're called as disciples, that the first step of discipleship places the disciple in a situation where faith is possible. If he refuses to follow and stays behind, he does not learn how to believe. He who is called must go out of his situation in which he cannot believe into the situation in which first and foremost faith is possible. But this step is not the first stage of a career. Its sole justification is that it brings the disciple into fellowship with Jesus, which will be victorious. When Jesus calls Peter, he doesn't give him the plan. He doesn't offer him a solution He offers him himself, his companionship. He is trustworthy. He's saying, follow me. And Peter has to bridge that gap and trust with his trust, trust Jesus in this, not knowing what's ahead. So much of our faith requires us to rely on Jesus. We can say it, we can believe it, but when it comes to that moment of actually stepping towards him, in a situation. That's where faith is possible. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is talking about. And often that's what Jesus is after, our trust in following him. I wonder what intersections are in your life currently. Lent often brings them to light a little bit. Some things that we might be relying on or moments where we're hearing from God for the first time or even just prayer life where Holy Spirit brings back a thought or uh, something that he's speaking to you about. Recently, I was making coffee with a friend and um, she began to share that she had a dream and she felt like God was speaking to her through the dream. Um, And she was just kind of telling me about how it was going and she mentioned that I was in the dream and that I had actually shared a word. And in that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, what did I share? Hold on, what did I say? And I was like, oh wait, that wasn't actually me, so I can't have I can't edit that anyway it was really really simple but basically I had shared a word um, that spoke into this friend's life directly that has been really significant for her it felt she woke up feeling like it was something from God she shared this with me as I said we're making coffee and I was like oh I'm so excited for what this means and could see that it was really impactful for her I went away and didn't think about it again for a little while but during that week it kept coming up that thought that I had shared a word. It's like Holy Spirit kept reminding me of it. For context, for me, I may have already shared the last time I preached that last year was quite difficult and I felt like I went into a bit of a spiritual darkness. I couldn't hear from God anymore the way I used to. So for someone to have a dream about me sharing a word, I found quite confronting and was like, oh, yeah, I used to do that. But Holy Spirit kept bringing it up and saying, no, you still are designed to do that. For me, it was an intersection because for me it had seemed like that had been lost. The death of that had happened last year. 
But God was saying, no, actually, I want to keep speaking to you. Will you listen? It was as if Jesus was standing before me. There was something very profound and deep. And the more Holy Spirit prompted me, the more I realized it was Jesus saying, come, follow, and spend time with me. And that requires me to do it, to actually take that step and trust that when I turn up, he will speak. Or maybe he won't, but I have to trust that he desires relationship, which is what Jesus is often after. That's actually what so much of this story is about, trusting God and how much humanity we naturally don't do it. But he is trustworthy. There might be other intersections in your life, perhaps one relationally, someone that you have been wrestling with for a while and you are praying about what it looks like to move forward. How do I continue in relationship with this person, whether it's at work or in a family or friends? And you feel like Jesus is asking you to forgive them. And just like Peter, you kind of like, hold on, Jesus, I've done this a few times and it hasn't worked. And Jesus kindly, as he did with Peter, just stood there and waited. And you, he's like, no, ask for forgiveness. We have to trust that Jesus is going to be with us in that. That intersection where all we could see is perhaps that vulnerability might get us hurt again, but actually trust that there is more going on. Or perhaps it's something else, another intersection in your life where finances are really tough, but you've been given this opportunity, something that will quickly get you some money, but it would mean it would compromise um, some of your values. What's the invitation there? To just go ahead and do it or to slow down? This is an intersection where there's opportunity to ask God, what do you want to do? We often have this fear or desire to jump in, to work out what it is. Peter didn't ask at that point. He had to trust that Jesus would provide for him, that he would know where he was going. What does it look like for us to trust Jesus the way that Peter did? And do you know what else I love about Peter? Is the ways that he does this over and over again in the Gospels. And also when he gets it wrong, we're probably going to get it wrong. And that's okay. Jesus is so patient with him. Even when he's afraid, Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. Jesus doesn't leave us if we get it wrong. The opportunity is always there. He's saying, follow me, trust me. It's always about relationship with Jesus. I encourage you to read more about Peter. As you go through the Gospels, you'll see him pop up. And it's actually a reminder that we need God. We're not always going to get it right. And that's okay. But I think as I was pondering this more, what does it look like now? What are the intersections that we have? And what is our temptation? I think our temptation is certainty. We want certainty. I don't know how many times I say it and I hear others say it. If I only had clarity on this, then I think my decision would be easier. I'm going to just wait for clarity. And sometimes that's good. But what does that look like? For me, I'll only go and spend time with God if I know I'm going to hear from him. I want clarity. I want there to be certainty in that first. Or when I forgive someone, I want to know that I'm going to get forgiveness or I won't be hurt again. If I know that, then I'll definitely do it. Or maybe that choice around finances. Actually, I want to know that this is going to work before I take a risk. But actually, that takes Jesus out. That means we're not dependent on anyone else. That 
means we lose an opportunity to grow in our discipleship and following Jesus. Jesus' invitation in these intersections, whatever they look like for you and for me, is to choose trust over certainty. To trust that he will provide what we need. To trust that when we can only see darkness, that actually there will be light. Remember, the cross represents this. We are marked by it. We experience these things. But also we have Holy Spirit who also brings life to the cross. Peter's world, his material world, and everything around him was dramatically interrupted by the power of Holy Spirit. That's the same today. This is the same spirit that is in you and I as we follow Jesus. If we choose certainty, if we change our decision in that gap, in that moment that Dietrich talks about where faith could be built, we actually limit God. We're putting our idea or our thoughts on what God could do instead of leaving it open and trusting how he would want to fill that gap, what he wants to do. I think also we do that because we're worried about the outcome, but actually the invitation is to trust in Jesus and the outcome's up to him. And he is trustworthy. We read about this throughout scripture, the ways that God follows through on what he says. And Jesus is so faithful and patient with Peter. Even up to those last moments, when Jesus comes back after his resurrection, he speaks to Peter again. He reminds him that actually I chose you to lead my church. I see something in you. I believe in you. Follow me. And that's the opportunity we have over and over again. We're going to have so many intersections in our life. When we take up our cross and follow Jesus, it's not always going to be this big epic thing. It might actually just be a step of obedience fueled by trust. Trust that Jesus will turn up. Trust that the Holy Spirit who rose him from the dead will actually bring life into areas of your life you haven't seen before. He can change circumstances. Where there's death, he can bring life. Where there feels like there's imprisonment, he can bring freedom. And where they may feel like there's been suffering, he will bring joy. That's the promise of the cross and what it looks like to take it up. Will you trust him? I'm going to pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I just really ask right now that whatever was said that landed, that you would continue to bring that to life. Thank you that you choose to come and enter our world, to enter our decisions, to offer us trust over and over again. I just declare and thank you for your sovereignty, for your faithfulness, and that you are trustworthy. Holy Spirit, may you lead us to take steps towards you again and again. Amen.